Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we start today, I do want to tell you about our final live event of the year. It's happening next Thursday, December the 10th at 7pm. And I'm going to be joined by Fintan O'Toole, by Jennifer Bray and Jennifer O'Connell and Pat Leahy to discuss the events of 2020. So there's going to be no shortage of subjects to discuss everything from a global pandemic to elections and their aftermaths in Ireland and in in the United States. And of course, uh, Brexit indeed, and plenty more besides. So if you would like to join us, just go to the show page for today's podcast and you'll find a link there where you can get your tickets or alternatively, you can find the same link pinned at the top of my Twitter feed at H. Linehan. The price is €20 or €10 for Irish Times subscribers. Um, So look forward to seeing you there. Now, speaking of Brexit, it is indeed Wednesday, December the 2nd, and there's just four weeks to go to the end of the transition period governing the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union. And we still do not know whether the two sides are going to reach an agreement on rules governing trade and other significant issues from January the 1st, 2021 onwards. With me today, I have voices from Brussels, from London and from Dublin, our Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary, along with our public affairs editor Simon Carswell, who's been leading our coverage of the Irish perspective on Brexit, and also our London editor Dennis Staunton. So where are we now? Um, I'll go to you first, Naomi, because I think Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, was speaking earlier today. Yeah, so um, Michel Barnier briefed uh, EU diplomats and also EU parliamentarians over video link from London. Um, And he uh, seems to have indicated that there had been some approach from the two sides, which gets them a little bit closer to a deal on fish. They had been very far apart. So um, the UK had been looking to claw back some 80% of what EU boats currently fish in UK waters, whereas the EU had indicated that it was willing to consider something between 15 and 18%. Um, So it's possible, it seems that um, some um, compromise has been discussed, which is a little bit less than that uh, 80%, which Britain had been saying before. Um, But we'll have to see if this bears out. Um, In recent days, some EU capitals have hardened their rhetoric about this and said that they won't, they're not interested in a deal at any price. Um, So the Belgian prime minister was over visiting Emmanuel Macron in Paris, the French president, and the two of them basically kind of warned on giving too much up in a deal. Um, Macron said it would have to be in France's interests, long-term interests, so not a short-term deal um, that would ultimately you know, agree things that would end up being against their interests long term. Um, And uh, the Belgian Prime Minister Alexandre de Croo uh, reflected those sentiments as well by warning essentially the EU negotiators not to give up too much. Um, Their support couldn't be guaranteed. Dennis, I remain slightly bewildered by the importance of fish and all this. Nothing against fish. I like it a lot. Um, But is it how much of it is symbolic and how much of it is actually germane to really serious issues? 
I think it's very important in two respects. First of all, I think you have to step back a little bit and think about what Brexit is and what's it for. It's a nationalist project. And as such, uh, most people who voted for Brexit didn't vote for Brexit because they thought they would be better off in the short term. They thought many of them that in the longer term they might be, but uh, that wasn't really the reason. And so it was, it was about sovereignty, get, taking back control of our, uh, our our laws, our money, our borders and our fish. And fish, in a way, it's, it's, it's a manifestation. It's a very concrete, easy to understand manifestation. These are British sovereign waters. And, uh, and so we must have control over these waters. And then obviously other people will fish in these waters, but it's up to us to negotiate with them rather than the way that Norway does. So that's, so it's, it's, you know, if you want to, to know, uh, is this Brexit deal really Brexit? Fish is one way of measuring it. The other thing is, if you look at where the British fishing industry is. It's, uh, a lot of it is concentrated in the north of England, uh, red wall places, important to Boris Johnson's uh, political electoral constituency. And then an awful lot of it is around Scotland. And once Brexit is done, if it is done at the end of this year, the next big item on the agenda in Britain is the Union. And uh, we've got elections coming up in Scotland in May, and that could lead to a chain of events that could lead to a second referendum. And so if there is a narrative that uh, Boris Johnson has betrayed the fishermen of Scotland, that's not good. So in that sense, it's uh, it's much more important than the money involved. And uh, so the money involved, we're talking really uh, in terms of the gap now between the British and the Europeans, we're talking a few hundred million euros a year. And uh, and so if you want to resolve all of this, you know, you're talking in a way about a few movable parts. You've got the uh, the size of the catch, how many fish are in the sea and how many of each species can each country catch. Uh, and then you're talking about time. How do you, do you phase things in? Do you phase them out? There are various things you can do with money. So the British could, for example, subsidize their uh, uh, their fishing fleets to maybe build new boats or whatever. And likewise, the Europeans can do something. What complicates it is that unlike everything else in these negotiations, it's not a straightforward negotiation between the Europeans and the British. It's also an intra-European negotiation. So if, for example, the French fishermen must triumph at the end of all of this for Macron's political reasons, then where does that leave the Irish fishermen? Should Ireland's interest, for example, be that it's so important to Ireland that we should get a deal that actually maybe some of our fishing quota should go to the French? You know, so there are all kinds of uh, complexities. And it's very, very neuralgic on both sides. But I think that in a nutshell is why it's so important. And Naomi, we reported last week that um, the French would be seeking, in the event of a deal, a, a substantial portion of the uh, the fund which is there to ameliorate the, the effects of Brexit, that the French would be looking for quite a lot of that to cover the effect on their fishing industry. Yeah, essentially, uh, Emmanuel Macron is in the early stages of a presidential campaign against the right wing Marine Le Pen. And he's very sensitive uh, about his political audience at home. And so he has been lobbying pretty hard for a substantial uh, amount of that five billion euro that was earmarked uh, to help states hard hit from Brexit to go to the French fishing industry. Um, now, of course, a lot of countries have their eyes on that fund. And the Irish government says that they're confident that, you know, Ireland's needs and the you know out outstanding impact of uh, Brexit on Ireland will be recognised ultimately. But yeah, they do... Um, and uh, so it's, there's obviously slightly different um, national interests at work here. And also it's worth 
uh, pointing out as well that at one point a potential division of the fish was discussed, which would have essentially protected the French uh, fishing uh, stocks in the channel, um, but have relinquished the more deep sea fishing, which are, is more important to places like Ireland, Denmark, and things like that. So the French and the Belgians would have been happy, but other states less so. Um, so it is one where the interests of all the EU states are kind of difficult to reconcile completely evenly. There's an uneven impact depending on the ultimate shape of the deal. Simon, I mean, we've focused a lot on on the UK and the Irish perspective on the UK negotiations with the EU as a whole. But what's the thinking in Ireland on issues of this sort, both in terms of how exactly a fishing deal might affect individual nations within the EU and also what form of compensation might be available? Well, I think it's interesting, even looking at, at what Michelle Barney has offered to the UK, um, the Irish fishing industry here says we need to see, you know, the devil is in the detail. We need to see exactly what fishing stocks would be affected, even with the offer of the 18% that he's given. British want 80%, but Irish fishermen aren't happy with the 18% because, for example, if it was a lot of mackerel, uh, Irish fish uh, fishing fleet catches an awful lot of mackerel in UK waters, uh, more than 60%, and it accounts for a huge share of the Irish catch. So let's say some of what Barney offered was a large proportion of mackerel. It would be big problems for the Irish fishing industry and the 14,000 people that work in that industry. So they want to see what exactly Barney is offering, but it's all part of the bigger negotiation. Um, Charlie McConnell was up before an Oireachtas committee yesterday and he, he really was just parroting the same lines over and over again, which is we want to retain access to UK waters, it, it basically maintain the status quo. We want the same quotas, the same share of the species of fish that we catch. And he also says we want fishing to be tied into a bigger deal. And that's really the big part of what the Irish fishing industry and the Irish government wants. They want uh, fishing to be tied to all the other things so that it can be used as leverage to continue to get access. And I think that's probably optimistic on the part of the Irish government and the fishing industry. But it does show what it comes down to. Um, I spoke to the Taoiseach for about 40 minutes, 35 minutes on, on Monday. And he was pointing out that the discussion has come down to this kind of level where he and Boris Johnson were discussing about where fish... The migratory patterns of mackerel, you know, the fish spawn in Irish waters but are caught at their most valuable in British waters. And he's basically saying, you know, that there are no borders in the sea. Uh, fish don't uh, abide by borders and therefore we have to be practical and sensible uh, and approach in this kind of issue. If I could point something out as well just about um, the fishing industry. So um, fishermen or fisherwomen are a little bit like taxi drivers in that they can be extremely effective in um, advocating for their own economic interests. And that's partly to do with the resources they have available to them. So in many European capitals, uh, taxi drivers have a quite protected industry. And that's because they can physically park their taxis in the middle of the road and cause a lot of disruption. So they're very good at striking. And fishermen are a little bit like that as well, because they can literally blockade trade. They can block blockade trade in and out of ports. They've done it in the past. There's been quite contentious like fish wars with uh, boats trying to sabotage other boats from catch and stuff. So when we talk about things, you know, being a politically sensitive issue, it's also to do with that heritage. Good, good, good point, I think, Naomi. But but regardless of that, Dennis, maybe we could actually just come back to <clears throat> the core question I said at the top of the podcast. You know, we've got four weeks, well, 31 days, no, sorry, less than 30 days, 29 days to go. Um, and there seems to be quite a lot to figure out yet. What is the real cutoff end proper 
never to be moved beyond deadline that we're working to. The 31st of December is the only deadline that's uh, that's actually non-negotiable. Uh, and uh, you certainly in my uh, you know decades of reporting on the European Union I've seen so many deadlines that were immovable being broken through I think we've all seen uh, that happening. So I just I think the on the other hand there are there is a real political deadline in that uh, these next couple of days are very important because if you get into next week without uh, really closing in on a deal, first of all, the internal market bill comes back from the House of Lords to the House of Commons. The government uh, is planning to put the offending clauses, the treaty-breaking clauses, back into that bill, which the Lords took out. And at the same time, they're introducing uh, a taxation bill, like a mini-finance bill, uh, which would give British ministers the right to unilaterally decide under the Northern Ireland Protocol which goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are regarded as being at risk of going into the European single market, which would be in breach of the withdrawal agreement. So obviously, if the uh, United Kingdom government were to do either of those things, uh, that might not mean that a deal was impossible, but it certainly would make it very, very difficult. It would, you know, it would wreck the atmosphere at a crucial moment. So I think that we really are talking about the next few days, and probably may, we're talking about something like uh, some intense negotiations the next couple of days, maybe some phone calls uh, between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, and possibly uh, European leaders, uh, Macron or, or um, Barnier reporting back to his people, and then some kind of shape of a deal being worked out over the weekend, and they may be ready to present uh, at the beginning of next week. And then that would allow uh, both uh, Westminster, Westminster doesn't have to ratify it in a straightforward way, but there is implementation legislation and uh, you know, that it has to pass. Uh, but again, they can do, you know, the government is in control of the timetable. Uh, it's clear that Parliament in, uh, you know, the, the European Parliament, they want time to uh, scrutinise this, but in the past they actually have, uh, you know, rushed th uh, through treaties like this very, very quickly, uh, you know, once you've got political agreement among the member states. So I think that actually, uh, you know, if we don't do something by the beginning of next week, then suddenly I think we are into a position where it's going to become more, much more difficult, even in the short time available to do it. So I think these next few days are the ones that matter. Naomi, do you agree with that timeline? Um, yes. And I would also say that um, from the EU side anyway, things have gone quite quiet, which is probably a good sign in terms of, you know, actual substance being discussed. But nobody wants to talk about deadlines anymore because it's become a bit ridiculous because we've almost said it every week that like this is the crunch week and this is the last week. Um, you know, the obviously the on the EU side, there are things that have to happen. It has to be ratified in the European Parliament, but all sorts of creative solutions are now being discussed in terms of how that can be got past. What I wonder, though, is like the European Parliament is pretty clear that they are, trust Barnier enough that whatever he comes back with, they can pass. So they've pretty much said that. But I mean, if we look to the history of this dispute and of these negotiations, the blockage hasn't come from the EU side. When deals are made, it tends to be scuppered by drama and fireworks in Westminster. And that's happened time and time again. So I wonder whether Boris Johnson is able, going to be able to sell whatever compromise, inevitable compromise emerges to his own party. Yeah, what about that, Dennis? Because, um, uh, I mean, Boris Johnson had the biggest rebellion of his government so far against his new, the new restrictions, which he's just introduced, the new tiers. That only happened yesterday. So there's a, there's a lot of restlessness on his own backbenches. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think if Boris Johnson gets 
a clear victory on fish, something that he can present as a clear victory on fisheries. And if he can present the deal on the level playing field as being uh, something which respects British sovereignty, and so, for example, it will be an independent British uh, regulator, uh, terms negotiated with the European Union, but still, you know, it, it, that, you know, so if there's clearly no role for the European Court of Justice, for example. And then, uh, so I think that as long as, the, as this Brexit deal looks like Brexit, I think within his own party, he's likely to keep the rebels fairly low. And so even people like Steve Baker, uh, who I was talking to, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, has kind of lost interest in Brexit. He's moved on uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are actually political to do with his own constituency, but also uh, he's moved on because they've moved on to the coronavirus and the restrictions, and that's where that libertarian we are going. So I think the people who are more likely to vote against it are the Bill Cashes, the Bernard Jenkins, the sort of paleo-Brexiteers in a way. And, and you could keep that fairly limited. But even if he has a, a substantial rebellion, it's fairly clear that the Labour Party is moving towards approving the deal, that uh, certainly all of those close to Keir Starmer uh, are suggesting that they believe that it's in their political interest to uh, approve the deal. What they've been saying publicly is that because it's a single framework, that this could be a framework on which you can build something better in the future. So a Labour government comes in and maybe says, okay, this is a very distant economic relationship. Maybe we can uh, renegotiate so that we get something closer. Whereas if you have no deal, then obviously you have everything that goes with that and, uh, and things fall apart. Simon, that sounds to me like relatively positive prognosis, both from, from Dublin and from Brussels there, about the chances of a of a deal over the next couple of weeks. What's the feeling in Dublin and how much nervousness is there? I mean, you've been reporting about testimony to Oireachtas committees about increasingly nervous, well, they've been nervous for a long time, but increasingly nervous uh, people in, in business and trade unions looking at the implications for, for jobs and the economy here next year. I think politically they are hopeful for a deal, primarily because um, a no-deal situation would just be awful. I mean, today I spent most of today listening to two Oireachtas committee hearings where the kind of takeaways from that were a deal is going to be terrible and a no-deal is catastrophic. Um, I mean, if you look at where businesses are, there's a real sense of frustration, bewilderment that they really don't know how to plan. I mean, that the words you keep hearing over and over again, it's going to be chaotic, there's uncertainty, there's a lack of information. There are no, no idea of how things are going to work when it comes to imports, exports, VAT, tax, um, and, and, and systems basically on, on goods moving through ports. And, you know, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, it's like there's kind of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. The known unknowns are that they can, they know there's going to be red tape and there's going to be vast amount of red tape when it comes to customs and food and animal health checks at the ports but what we don't know about that is is how the ports are going to cope with that um, the Taoiseach was saying this week that we're looking at custom entry forms going from one and a half million a year pre-Brexit to 20 million post-Brexit which is just a vast amount of bureaucracy and many businesses aren't ready uh, there's thousands of Irish businesses mainly small and medium-sized businesses that haven't even signed up for um, a basic customs registration number that you can do online in a matter of minutes so it's strange they haven't chosen to do do that. And then when it comes to what we don't know is uh, the tariffs and the quotas. I mean, if there is no deal, then that's going to add a huge financial cost as well as red tape, more red tape on top of the existing red tape that's due to come in because food and drinks industries rely very heavily on the UK market to uh, export goods. So if there are tariffs, that is a huge headache for businesses to bear. And in many cases, you will have businesses just won't be able to cope with that. One of the committee me meetings I listened in on today 
was they were talking about the unbearable cost of 1.5 billion on food and drink industries in Ireland if there are tariffs. So really, it's a pretty scary time if you're in business. And it's less than a month ago before these checks and inspections that would be required at ports come into effect. And can I just ask you on that, you know, given the two options, one terrible and one catastrophic, on the terrible one, if some kind of skinny free trade agreement um, comes through, there's still going to be red tape. There's still going to be a change in the way in which goods travel across our borders. There's still Is there still concern, for example, about Dublin port just seizing up? There isn't a no deal in, under a no deal situation, but the teacher himself pointed to this the other day when he was talking to me on Monday. He said that a lot of the contingency planning for a no deal is wrapped up in the negotiations. So let's say there is this bare bones or thin deal, whatever way you want to describe it that might take the political heat out of the situation. And then you might have the European Union saying, well, actually, we're going to uh, cut some slack on the very severe SBS checks, these sanitary and and animal food and health checks that need need to be required, where there's very little discretion on the part of EU inspectors and border inspectors. They have to check a certain amount of meat that comes uh, crosses a border. So if there is even a thin deal, that might free up things and make things easier when it comes to those checks that are required on January 1st. But obviously the preference is for some kind of deal rather than no deal, because just no deal has got so many unknowns and such a huge financial cost for so many businesses. In the event of no deal, Naomi, there are other kinds of things that possibly people haven't even haven't thought about all kinds of services and ways in which our economies are intertwined, aren't there, that might be affected in ways that people won't really realise until they're faced with them in the first weeks of January. Yes, uh, deal or no deal, there are a couple of uh, decisions that the Commission has been holding out on. Um, So, for example, one concerns the ease at which um, uh, financial uh, businesses will be able to um, provide services to customers in the single market. Um, Essentially, as it stands right now, um, any financial UK financial um, business will have to deal separately with regulatory authorities in each EU member state. Um, And that some EU member states don't even have the required financial authority. So it basically cuts a lot of firms out of the EU single market. Um, in order to fix that, a decision has to be taken to the, by the Commission, uh, which you know says that basically EU or UK regulations are more or less adequate and similar to the EU's. And they say they've been holding out on that because while they appreciate that on the 31st of December, the uh, rules in the UK will be the same, they don't know what the future plan of the London government is. And they've been hearing noises about uh, you know divergence and independent coast state and all of this kind of stuff which kind of alarms them so they've been holding out on doing that and also I think they're probably holding it as a kind of an ace uh, in the negotiations just another thing to put pressure on the UK with another one concerns the transfer of data so right now um, as it stands no data adequacy has decision has been taken that sounds a bit technical but what basically means is for example if you have a meat plant in let's say uh, Cavan and they've got someone in Fermanagh who's doing their payroll Uh, that would suddenly become much more difficult because you can't send the personal details of people's names and uh, bank accounts and addresses over the border anymore um, unless there's a a data adequacy decision. You'd have to go through quite technical process to ensure that the data was treated in in a careful way. Um, uh, Because, and this is essentially down, the reason why this 
decision hasn't been made, my understanding is, is because that the UK allows its security services to look at that kind of information in some circumstances. And they've never ha- they've never been secretive about that. And they're also a part of five eyes. So they could potentially pass on information to other allies. And that was one thing when they were an EU member state. But now that they're not, it's another thing. Um, so this would be kind of like a if you like a hard border for data, it would be invisible, but it would just really, really disrupt disrupt businesses on the island um, from cooperating cross border. Dennis, I, I suppose some of this stuff is just things that you know we'll have to roll with the punches when they arrive in whatever form they 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 do arrive. But but in terms of what you were saying earlier about perhaps if I understood you right about this not even necessarily being the main item at the top of Boris Johnson's agenda, that being probably COVID and and dealing with COVID at the moment. Uh, if if I'd come on a time machine from November 2019 and seen how little attention was being um, devoted to this these kind of crucial subjects in the British media and perhaps in other media as well, European media too, I would have been very, very surprised. But it really does seem to be the case that everybody's decided that they just need to get this bit of business out of the way. We're going to move on as quickly as possible. Yeah, well, Boris Johnson got elected on a promise of getting Brexit done. And he, uh, he in a way, presented getting the Brexit withdrawal deal done as being getting Brexit done. And the rest was kind of wrapping it up. Obviously, as you know, Naomi has been describing, there's an awful lot of uh, loose ends that haven't been wrapped up. But I think this is, in a way, the crucial thing about the difference between a deal and no deal. There's quite a lot of talk about this is going to be a thin deal. But actually, uh, no deal. First of all, it's not that thin, actually, because from the British point of view, having tariff-free, quota-free access to the European single market is actually a big deal. But also, uh, if there is no deal, uh, immediately all kinds of things are going to be very, very difficult, like the things that Naomi was mentioning, all kinds of others. There will be no goodwill. As soon as you do have a deal, if there are areas that somebody hasn't thought of or if you need a bit more time, you're, you're on speaking terms, you'll be able to you know, to do something about it, to ease things. You can phase, even say if we're talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol, you can phase that kind of thing in if you, there is some kind of a deal. If you're actually fallen out in, uh, you know, uh, in a discordant kind of a way, that's all much more difficult, which is why I think it's important in a way that uh, the Europeans, those European states that believe that a little bit of uh, a few months in the cooler uh, would do the British no harm at all, and they'd, they'd be much more amenable partners if they experienced what disruption was like in real life. I think the problem is that uh, you know, all kinds of things happen. So, for example, you've got the internal market bill, you've got the finance bill, you've got all of this treaty-breaking stuff. You then have, uh, you know, perhaps fish wars. You've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, people being difficult. You've got the media here blaming the Europeans. You've got the politicians blaming them. And and so it just makes coming back to the table in a few months, I think, really very difficult. You know, which is why I would say, if I were the Europeans, uh, that if uh, what we believe to be true is that uh, there's some landing zone on the level playing field and on governance, which is uh, satisfactory to the Europeans. And if the Europeans have to make a big concession on fisheries, and if that also may mean the European Union paying a bit more to the French fishermen than the European Union may wish to do, that actually, uh, if they were able to do that at the price of a few hundred million euros a year, I think that they should say thank you very much. They should celebrate. They should build a statue of Michel Barnier in every town square in Europe. I think there's really... 
you know, there's nothing not to like about that arrangement, which is, you know, and it is also, I think, actually, even though it's complicated, I think it is easier uh, for the Europeans to move on fish than it is for Boris Johnson. I think if Boris Johnson can't get a deal uh, that he thinks he can sell on fisheries, I think he won't do the deal. And so I do think that uh, that it's actually very difficult for him to do one without quite a big concession from the Europeans on fisheries. Yeah, I mean, it has. I've seen it suggested, Naomi, that you know, if this thing isn't going to happen, it'll be because of a, a cock up or running out of time or just you know a, a, an overestimation on one side or another of how far the other one can be pushed. And in relation to that, there's been some suggestion that there was a danger that the European side, because of some of the factors which Dennis mentions, um, there are things like the departure of Dominic Cummings from Downing Street, the election of Joe Biden in the United States, would. Um, would prompt some people on the European side to try and push for just that bit more, which, as Dennis says, the British won't go for it. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it's difficult to know what the dynamics are like inside the room. Uh, But certainly for me, when you hear the two sides speaking and kind of briefing about what's going on, it is like hearing dispatches from two alien planets, you know, like really the kind of the, at least the tone from the British side it has been quite difficult to re- reconcile with the idea of getting a deal, um, particularly around the time of the introduction of the Internal Markets Bill. It was seen as an act of deliberate destruction by many at the EU and the sign that they actually didn't want a deal at all and making a deal much more difficult. And I think to the extent that EU states are still paying attention to this, there are a lot. Uh, there are a lot of them who who are tempted into thinking things like, well, you know, if this is what they want, uh, let them try it out and see how they like it, you know. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think the fact that they're in there talking, um, you know, indicates that both sides are, you know, still seriously trying to do this. Otherwise, you know, why would we all be wasting our time? Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think there is a potential for a last minute surprise because we've seen it so many times happened so many times, you know, whether it was, you know, the DUP picking up the phone to Theresa May or, you know, a sudden rebellion in the House of Commons or whatever. Um, we, I wouldn't kind of counter chickens yet. Uh, Simon, I think there's no doubt that of, of all the 27 EU member states, Ireland most deeply dreads the idea that something like that would happen, that the thing would fall apart and that, that we wouldn't have a deal. And so presumably is acting in whatever way it can behind the scenes to try and make sure that that doesn't happen. And maybe also assuming, you know, a, a further role now and in the years to come as being sort of the Brit whisperer, I suppose, within the EU, the close neighbours, close, close, closer cultural ties. Now, we've heard from, from Dennis, among others, that, you know, that those bonds have been frayed a little bit by events of the last few years, but they're still there, aren't they? They definitely are. I mean, you know, Britain was a convenient kind of Eurosceptic when, when it was still in the European Union, um, and, you know, that benefited Ireland on occasion. And, even this week, Michal Martin was talking about hoping that this deal can be done because he wants to reset the agenda. He wants to start off with a new strategic relationship between Ireland and Britain that is post-Brexit. He wants to move on from this. Um, and that's clearly a challenge. And obviously relations haven't been great over the last four years with all of the political noise out of London from the Brexiteers and uh, all of the tensions that there have been from the British media uh, playing up the role of, of Radker and Coveney in 
this in this in this whole mess. Um, but yeah, they, they, Martin is keen for for it to move on and start anew. And the other point I'd make is with all of the kind of uncertainty that exists around the talks and the inability to plan, one significant development here in the last week has been that where the Irish can't plan on what's going to come out of the talks, it can plan on alternatives. And the very obvious one that's been done in the last few weeks and has been um, in the planning for quite some time is to bypass Britain. Um, Ireland relies on getting goods to and from Europe. And what we've done and what the ports have done in the last number of weeks is that look at new routes. So uh, last week there was an announcement by a Danish shipping company, very significant shipping company in Europe, DFDS, and they're going to start moving goods between Rosslare and Dunkirk direct. And these, the significance of the route is that lorries can roll on and roll off that ferry, um, whereas previously you couldn't get to that part of Europe unless you put your goods in a container. And that's very significant. And obviously the choice of Dunkirk, the irony of that and the significance of Dunkirk in British military history is not lost on people on the choice of that route. But it's very significant because where you can't plan and there is going to be unpredictability going across Britain, there's going to be uncertainty going through ports with all these checks, particularly Dover on the English Channel. And there's about 150,000 to 170,000 trucks go over and back uh, across the land bridge, uh, British land bridge to Europe. What this route will do is create uh, an option for 40,000 of those trucks to bypass Britain. So I think if there are is difficulties over the coming months, if there is an no deal, you're going to see much more uh, direct contact and direct trans transport routes between Ireland and and Europe, and this is obviously coming at a critical time when the importance of getting COVID vaccines in and in and, in and off, uh, into the island onto the island is very significant. I think it's worth pointing out what that will actually mean as well, just for you know um, Irish people say doing their shopping, um, the kind of uh, trade that we had with Britain in the past, whether there's a deal or no deal um, won't be feasible in the same way anymore because there will be barriers to trade one way or another and um, then you know comparatively trade with the continent will be uh, cheaper basically and it may change the products that we have on our shelves we'll probably have a a less variety of things that come from Britain Um, and it may even change the shops themselves like we'll have to see if the British supermarkets even choose to stay in Ireland and whether it's kind of still worth it for them and so I think it's worth just pointing that out in terms of you know probably the kind of economy that we've been used to it will change I'm a big fan of the German discounters anyway so it doesn't concern me perhaps as as a Marks and Spencer shopper um Dennis just to be absolutely clear then to 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 wrap it up you're saying that there needs to be some quite positive signs emerging in the first day or two of next week Monday or Tuesday of next week I think we need to really, uh, I think we need to be having some phone calls later this week. I think we need to have some progress over the weekend and some uh, very concrete sign uh, then uh, at the beginning of next week. I think in a way it's a complicated thing because although we keep hearing that they're zoning in on the landing zone for these other issues, the problem is that uh, you, you need to unlock fish to allow the British side to be more flexible on the level playing field and governance. But unless uh, the deal is really signed, sealed and delivered on those issues, the Europeans won't have the incentive to really make that final push on fisheries and whether you know, whatever it is, the combination of things they've got to do on that. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's, it's kind of somebody has to move first and nobody wants to move first. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and it's all going to come down to the next, uh, the next couple of days. And Naomi, let's say that positive, those positive signals don't emerge on Monday or Tuesday, say, of next week. 
Do we then move to a phase where both sides are preparing a, a blame game? I think that um, what will happen is there's already been calls from several member states for the EU Commission to start rolling out and intensifying their no-deal contingency plans, which they have, I don't know, locked in a vault somewhere, but haven't sort of released yet. Um, they, those would be things uh, we anticipate just the bare minimum to keep basically transport going. Uh, there probably have to be special law just to let planes to keep flying and to keep you know trucks on the road, things like that, because after all, this would be the abrupt dissolution of like decades of illegal relationship overnight um so that would probably happen no doubt there'd be lots of blame to go around probably the um you know from the british side i'd the the eu side always say that you know they won't walk away from the talks they won't walk away they'll keep the door open even if it's up until december 31st um so you know i i I believe them because they're still going at this point Uh, but it does it does start to look quite difficult the eu um, member states are meeting in brussels next week for a summit and then um, i've heard a rumor a horrible depressing rumor which i hope isn't true that there's a contemplated a another eu summit in the days immediately after christmas so we'll have to see what happens there you have it michel barnier the grinch who stole christmas for naomi if 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 for nobody else anyway we leave it there but i think we're definitely going to continue to be covering this over the next week or so because I think we are approaching the crunch time but for the moment we leave it and thanks to to Simon to Dennis and Naomi thanks to our producer Declan Conlon remember you can contact us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com but until the next time thanks for listening Spring is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.